a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, today I'm going to do my very best to justify my existence. Actually, not just my existence, but the existence of every single person out there, no matter how big the platform from which they're speaking or writing. We need free speech more than ever. I'm going to illustrate why here in just a few moments. Let me start by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSLMO.com, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. So I, I know the the big trending news is what's this? Elon Musk is Elon Musk is buying uh, Twitter or has made an offer to buy Twitter, and you know. I'm not that big on on spending all my time on social media. In fact, I really limit how much time I spend on social media thanks to uh, having watched a show called The Social Dilemma. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, this is it's it's worth your time if only just to to introduce the possibility. What if the place where so many people spend so much time just scrolling, 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 sending out emojis and messages and whatnot was being used to manipulate how you see the world. I think they make a pretty strong case. And I'm skeptical of, uh, you know, what social media provides in terms of costs versus benefits. In some cases, I think the costs may outweigh the benefits, but let's, uh, let's look at what is happening with Elon Musk saying, hey, he first he bought, what was it, like a 9 almost 10% share of Twitter, and he's been a very popular figure on there. I mean, he's been kind of a firebrand. I think he has 80 million followers. He's taunted, you know, some of the people who've pushed back hardest on free speech. But what's so telling is now he made a full-fledged offer, like in the tunes of to the tune of billions of dollars, to purchase Twitter outright. And and I think the the hysteria that we're seeing right now from the left in America is very telling. And it's it's not just America, by the way. Twitter is a worldwide thing, but but if you look at who is lining up and and the the organizations, the other shareholders, for instance, Vanguard, BlackRock, you've heard of these perhaps? Yeah. The way that they are starting to circle the wagons, it's like, whoa, 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 we can't let this important platform, you know, somehow squeak through our our squeak out of our control and and become a place where people can just <laughs> say what they want. I mean, it's. I haven't seen this kind of hysteria since election night, twenty sixteen. That is saying something because that was, that was a night of an of an amazing meltdown that continued for the next four years and and beyond. They still, you know, Orange Man Bad is is still the driving force in a lot of people's lives. But I want to I want to share with you this is about a one minute clip from a couple of commentators on MSNBC, and I want you to just hear the fear. Not just in their voices, but in their message about uh, what what happens if Elon Musk were to get a hold of Twitter and stop censoring people the way that Twitter has been censoring people. Listen to this hysteria. There are real and devastating consequences for using that platform to lie. Mm-hmm. 
and we've seen it. We've seen it yes. happen. I, I wonder. You know, when talking about this, it's you know, it's kind of funny. Oh, Elon Musk wants to yeah, buy it, but sure. there are massive life and globe altering, altering consequences for just letting people mm -hmm. run wild on the thing. Yes, 100%. But that's Facebook is really the, yeah. where the real action is in that. So that's this is a very small company. People, It has an outsized influence because media people like it, politicians, world leaders, um, and Elon Musk. And so one of the issues is if he's not going to do this, and by the way, Twitter and some of its biggest investors uh, like uh, Prince uh, Al-Walid bin Talal are saying no, and they're putting poison pills in, mm. um, what is he going to do? Uh, he's going to have to somehow unload this 10% stake. Um, and he probably that's probably what he's going to have to do or raise private financing, which has its own risks uh, and possible rewards, but a lot of risks for him. Well, I didn't play the soundbite, but he was asked if there's a plan B and he laughed and said there is. We'll find oh, out well, what that that's, is. That's what a super villain hero would say, right? <laughs> he thinks he's Tony Stark, right? That's what they'd say. Whatever, however you feel about him, that's what Tony Stark would say. Karis for sure. It is wow. 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 Yes, yes, yes. Somehow this is very dangerous. People just running wild on the thing, you know, saying what they think and not, not being subject to being censored. And oh, my word. Have you ever heard such hysteria in your life? And, and here's the kicker. This is the part that gets me. You know, who's, you know the, the, the voices you just heard? These are the liars. These are the people who lie for a living. <laughs> this is the mainstream heritage media, which has lied and lied and lied to us ceaselessly but they're very concerned that someone might use this uh, platform to oh i don't know you know to to uh, to lie you know to to mislead people i can only think that they're feeling like their job security is threatened or something like this i don't know it's it's astonishing and i, I have to throw this out there too because it's possible maybe this is just a huge distraction is this supposed to keep us looking, you know, at something shiny and something that everybody's talking about? It's certainly dominating the news cycle, so it's it's a little suspect in, in that regard, but it's undeniable. The liars are scared that they're going to have to compete with truth, or at least with uh, something other that something other than their lies is going to be made available more freely to people. Now, I don't know what Musk's options are. I mean, look, at this point, if he sells his shares, if he decides, nah, Twitter, you're you're just not worth it, I think he could. I don't know what it would take, you know, in terms of uh, the the startup costs, but he could he could afford to create his own alternative and probably bring, I would guess, the majority of his 80 million followers right over with him. But understand, this is not about, hey, you know, Twitter, you do what I say or we're going to destroy. This is not some Bond supervillain. And the underlying issue here, what I'm asking you to consider is, why are those people in powerful places so concerned that information might be able to flow a little more freely and not be subject to algorithms and, and fact checkers and, and other people who want to make sure that only the official narrative can be taken seriously? I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm i not a Twitter expert, but I do find people on Twitter who have some very worthwhile things to say. And it's occurred to me that, you know, the voices that have been most effective at speaking truth or at least offering alternatives to that uh, that mainstream narrative that we're supposed to believe no matter what, these are the ones that are getting silenced. These are the ones who are seeing their accounts suspended or otherwise just terminated. 
I don't fear free speech. Even speech with which I disagree. Somebody wants to speak what they want to speak, I say let them. Doesn't mean I have to agree with them. And just like you don't have to agree with me. I mean, tens of billions of dollars right there on the table. And he's talking cash. Look, we'll put, you know, I'll pay this much. Here's my offer. And the shareholders at Twitter are like, uh, well, uh, I don't know if we can do that. You know, in, in, in free market capitalism, when somebody puts billions of dollars in free money in front of you and says, would you like this? Most, most people would say, heck yeah. Knowing full well they can, you know, put that to good use. That's, that's a resource now they can go and allocate as they see fit. But totalitarians, on the other hand, would be the ones to say, I don't want the money. Why? Because it's the control. <laughs> I think that's, that's the issue. They want control. And I'm sorry if this sounds kind of radical, but I'm feeling a bit animated just because the people who lie want to be the arbiters of the truth no matter what. And I know very well they can't, they can't handle the truth. They don't want us to handle the truth. Imagine the threat to freedom and democracy if people could just say what they think. Glenn Greenwald pointed out this is without hyperbole the most, the overarching belief of Western liberal elites and many if not most of their followers. What a threat to freedom and democracy if somebody could, could say something that, uh, that we don't approve of or that we don't first filter to make sure that uh, it's, it's actually something you could be exposed to or put some kind of qualifier on it. Well, now, our fact checkers have looked at this and this is what they said. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be treated as a child, especially when it comes to the information that I access and, and the, the ability to make up my own mind on what it all means. And kids, once upon a time, there was a media or a press that we had that would actually report facts free of judgment, free of loaded buzzwords and emotionalism. And the viewing public or the reading public was supposed to sit down and think about the information, the facts that they had been presented, and then make up their own minds. And that doesn't mean that they, people didn't try to steer or persuade in a different direction. But there was actually a thing called journalism. I know. And it had ethics, lines you did not cross, like inserting editorial into actual hard news stories. Those days are gone. So who's going to pick up that torch of truth and carry it forward? The answer is looking at you in the mirror. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, Dixie Chiropractic, that's Dr. Ward Wagner, is one of my sponsors. It would mean a lot to me if you are among my listeners in southern Utah, and especially if you are dealing with pain from car accident injuries, or maybe you have a bulging or herniated disc, or you're dealing with neuropathy, please get a hold of Dr. Wagner. You can just go to their website. I've got a link in the show notes, DixieChiro.com. They've got a couple of introductory offers that I think would be well worth your time. But uh, I want you to check this out for yourself. It means the world to me that I have these sponsors who support my efforts to get the truth out there. And if you or someone you know is dealing with pain, and again, this is particularly for my listeners in southern Utah, please check out DixieChiro.com. That's Dr. Ward Wagner, Dixie Chiropractic. 
So let's delve into Elon Musk's move on Twitter. Got an article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. He says, as you have undoubtedly heard, Elon Musk, ever the rebel, has offered to buy the whole of Twitter for more than $43 billion. Now, he says that offer is final. No negotiation. If it's rejected, he will likely sell his 10% stake. Now, Jeff Tucker says, I'm personally excited about the prospect because so many of my friends have been canceled by the platform. I've seen the way this has affected their lives. Yes, they move on eventually, but the platform has become poorer in their absence. The range of opinion is more narrow. The links to vital research materials more and more thin. Plus, he says, many of us who remain are more careful than we should be. In other words, we're self-censoring. Elon's bid threatens this entire model, which is why right now shockwaves are shooting through many powerful quarters. Twitter's already packed with legacy users, ooh, bad slip there, legacy users clutching pearls and confessing how frightened they are. Now, Jeff Tucker says, Twitter's probably the most powerful communication tool on the planet today, as instrumental in the election of Donald Trump as it was in driving the COVID narrative toward lockdowns and mandates. Its influence far outstrips its market capitalization. As Revolver News puts it, <clears throat> Twitter remains, by Elon's own admission, the de facto public town square. Despite its severe censorship, it is still the only major digital public space where anonymous accounts can interact with celebrities, journalists, and business titans, including Elon. Where world leaders engage in spirited public diplomacy, and where dominant cultural and political narratives incubate and spread. Jeffrey Tucker says, therefore, this is not just about one company or one buyout. It's about the future of information control in the U.S. and the whole world. It's about whether the controls, takedowns and censorships imposed over two years are going to be sustained or, if we're going to trust the theory embedded in the First Amendment, truth stands the best hope of emerging when the right to speak is presumed to be an extension of human rights. Now, people will say, but it's private. And he says, let's be clear on terms. People have argued for a long time that Twitter, as a private company, is free to do what it wants. Granted. Further, it's argued that every single Internet platform must have terms of use and hence curate content. That also is granted. Finally, he says it's up to the management of all such platforms to map out and enforce the range of what's considered permissible in the interest of its own users. And that is also true. Now, he says the practices we've seen emerge over several years at Twitter and by extension also at Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, and many other companies owned and controlled by the top tech companies in the U.S. have gone far beyond these basics. Number one, the bans and takedowns have not been consistent with the terms of use. Often they seem entirely arbitrary based not on what's actually threatening or misinformation, but on some judgment of what seems sayable or not sayable on that day or that hour. Even worse, the attacks have felt pointlessly punitive. Accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers have been blown away in a day for no reason. Now, that's clearly not good business, so why is it happening? Number two, these platforms have coordinated with each other, not perfectly, but in a way that's clearly discernible. If you get slammed by one venue, the risk of getting hit by others rises. Get your YouTube channel deleted and you start to feel the heat from Twitter and LinkedIn, too. Same goes for Facebook. They're very clearly coordinating with each other. And as great and wonderful as the alternatives are, the network is nearly not nearly as large or influential. Number three, government officials have been public about demanding these controls from these private companies. Biden denounced Facebook for permitting some COVID dissent, and his spokesperson has done the same. 
The Surgeon General's office in July 2021 put out a highly officious advisory demanding all sorts of practices from major platforms. This is so clearly a violation of the First Amendment that it seems crazy that the office is allowed to get away with it. So what did that Surgeon General advisory say? Well, here's what it said, quote, It demanded that all platforms, quote, make meaningful long-term investments to address misinformation, including product changes, redesign recommendation algorithms to avoid amplifying misinformation, build in frictions, such as suggestions and warnings, to reduce the sharing of misinformation and make it easier for users to report misinformation. Give researchers access to useful data to properly analyze the spread and impact of misinformation. Researchers need data on what people see and hear, not just what they engage with. And what content is moderated, in other words, labeled, removed, downranked, including data on automated accounts that spread misinformation. Prioritize early detection of misinformation super spreaders and repeat offenders. Impose clear consequences for accounts that repeatedly violate platform policies. Amplify communications from trusted messengers and subject matter experts. For example, work with health and medical professionals to reach target audiences. Direct users to a broader range of credible sources, including community organizations. End quote. Now, with the advisory came a note from the Surgeon General. Limiting the spread of health misinformation is a moral and civic imperative that will require a whole-of-society effort. A whole-of-society effort? You know, that's exactly the same language deployed by the World Health Organization when, in February of 2020, it issued a document celebrating the way the Chinese Communist Party handled the coronavirus. But in this case, the virus is simply information the government hasn't approved. So in the United States, there are clear limits, legal limits, on the ability of governments to restrict free speech. How best for government officials to get around these limits and avoid court challenges? Well, the answer seems rather clear. Nudge private companies to do it for you. It's a way of getting around the Bill of Rights, and it's very clever. The framers of the U.S. Constitution believed that the strictures written in parchment would work, would protect freedom, but after all these years, the administrative state has gradually come to discover this workaround. So now let's say you own one of the platforms out there that's distributing information to the public by virtue of soliciting content from users. You read this advisory from the Surgeon General. What force of law does it have? Well, it's unclear. Who voted on this? No one. Who's going to enforce it and how? Well, we really don't know. All we know is the most powerful institution in society has demanded that you run your business precisely as it says. So are you free to ignore these exhortations and what happens to you if you do? Well, we don't know that either. Look at what happened to Parler. It was adding millions of users in late 2020 as Twitter censorship intensified. It was becoming a viable competitor. Then the attack started, including detailed articles in major media. Apple removed the app from its store. Then the web host company Amazon responded and simply blasted the company into the ether, just like that. Now, eventually, Parler regrouped, but it never recovered its previous momentum. Now, there are hundreds or thousands of cases, but one stands out to Jeffrey Tucker, and that is the cancellation of Russia today, both the American version and the international one. There was so much programming on the American version in particular that was valuable. Many thousands of shows over many years, not Kremlin propaganda, but shows on philosophy, business, culture, and so much more. It was hugely valuable, and then in one day, it was all blasted away as a reflection of U.S. foreign policy priorities. Now, he says, just yesterday, I received an email from Google Ads that they will no longer accept any ads that seem not to take a pure U.S. line on the Russian-Ukraine war. 
Is this a private company parading for truth and against misinformation? Or is this a private company that has given over the management of its information architecture to government priorities and to match those priorities? See, wars are complicated with many layers of facts and arguments. Pushing only one settled view of good guys and bad guys is perhaps the way governments like it. But it's inconsistent with everything we know about the history of nation-state relationships. He calls it what it is. It's a ministry of truth. The question is, can you see what's taking shape right under our noses? We'll come back to Jeffrey Tucker's article, just the other side of these messages. You can check out the article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is one of my sponsors. And again, uh, my listeners in Southern Utah really have the benefit of having them right there in their community. It's a family-owned business located in St. George, Utah. It's been around since 1984. In that time, it's only changed hands three times. And the original owner still is very much a part of the day-to-day operations in that he's uh, back there fixing machines, you know, sewing machines, long-arm quilters, sergers, you name it. So if you have interest in sewing... And there are a lot of people who do, but even if you don't, you probably know someone who does. Please direct them to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Not only will they get the very best choice of machines at the very best prices, but you also get all the supplies that you need, the training to use those machines to their full advantage, and you also get service to back up, you know, what you bought to keep it repaired, keep it maintained. Even if you didn't buy your machine from Sewing and Quilting Center, they can still take care of you. I've got a link to their website in my show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Give it a click and consider adding a sewing machine to uh, your list of uh, self-reliance tools. May come a day you'll be very glad you did. So I'm sharing this article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute about uh, Elon Musk's big move on Twitter. And he points out here, the Ministry of Truth has effortlessly pivoted from one opinion on COVID to one opinion on Russia and Ukraine. You've seen this happen. We've talked about this on this program for, you know, for years now, a couple of years. It will continue this toward whatever the next thing is, maybe something to do with inflation. In fact, if I can find it, I'll I'll play the Putin price hike memo that went out, and you can hear the president and his spokespeople and politicians and news anchors all chanting, you know, this, this phrase, hoping that it will stick. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, here's the grave problem with the myriad people who are demanding a breakup of big tech. Who or what is going to break it up? He asks, why should anyone assume that government, the very institution that's been the major source of the problem, is the right tool for this? Any effort by government to break up big tech is certainly going to be captured by the very companies that government seeks to control. So Musk's capitalistic means here are not only more consistent with the American way, but also more workable in the end. Last week, Peter Thiel denounced the financial gerontocracy, rallying behind fiat currency and putting down cryptocurrency. He predicts that the young will overthrow the old in time. Now, we can make the same observation about corporate rulers today. Too many of them have signed up to become sock puppets for the state and a woke cultural social agenda. That's had a profound effect on American life, in fact, on life all over the world. 
Jeffrey Tucker concludes Elon Musk's exciting and dramatic move represents a bold attempt to overthrow the regime of control, propaganda, and enforced opinion as manufactured by the administrative state. He says it could be a sign of things to come. The upheaval of our times will eventually touch every institution based on the widespread perception that something has gone very wrong and cries out for a fix. I always I like being able to turn to Jeffrey Tucker just because I think he has a very informed and principled take on this. And we're going to get into this some more in the in the other hour of the show. We'll talk more about this uh, this move to to create well to push back I guess against woke corporate America, and that's that's what you're seeing right now with with Musk's move. Now. Isn't it ironic that truth could be so hard to find during a time that's called the information age? Look at the information that's available right there in the palm of your hand. You can look up anything you need to look up right there on your smartphone. And yet darkness seems to be settling all around us. Have you noticed? Annie Holmquist has a marvelous essay on searching for truth in our media dark age. Listen to what she has to say here. The first dark ages are lost in the mists of antiquity with virtually no records. The coming dark ages will be equally lost in the blaze of studio lighting with a superabundance of records almost all falsified. Now she says, hey, I haven't seen many articles from you guys in my Facebook feed lately, a friend told her the other day, wondering whether he had his settings wrong or something else was amiss. No, she replied, seeing that the record should be set straight. We just talked about Hunter Biden and his laptop before the subject was popular. Then she went on to explain how Facebook had given intellectual takeout its first week-long jail sentence in the fall of 2020 almost immediately after they posted an article daring to suggest that something smelled rotten from the laptop story. Apparent shadow banning followed shortly thereafter, preventing the many who wanted to receive our content from even seeing it. Annie Holmquist says, The Hunter Biden story is admittedly a sore spot for us. While it's great that our institution is now vindicated for posting such a story, it still feels rather unjust that we were published and maligned by those in mainstream and social media arenas for simply trying to present the facts in order to build public awareness. Even now, mainstream stories about the laptop as well as the backhanded apologies that accompany them seem crafted to justify their earlier coordinated efforts to conceal the truth. One can't help but wonder how many other stories in the mainstream media are concealed or <clears throat> falsely represented. The answer, according to the late British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, is a lot. Writing in his autobiography, Chronicles of Wasted Time, Muggeridge recounted how a member of the old Comintern once described a meeting at which some stratagem was under discussion, and a delegate, a newcomer who had never attended before, made the extraordinary observation that if such and such a statement were to be put out, it wouldn't be true. The man went on to recount that those in the room laughed and laughed until tears ran down their cheeks and the Kremlin walls seemed to shake. Muggridge then added that the same laughter echoes in every council chamber and cabinet room wherever two or more are gathered to exercise authority. That quest to conceal truth in order to grab power is also practiced by a number of media organizations. As Muggridge notes further, quote, In the nearly seven decades I've lived through, the world has overflowed with bloodshed and explosions whose dust has never had time to settle before others have erupted, all in purportedly just causes. The quest for justice continues and the weapons of the hatred pile up, but truth was an early casualty, 
the lies on behalf of which our wars have been fought and our peace treaties concluded. The lies of revolution and of counter-revolution, the lies of advertising, of news, of salesmanship, of politics, the lies of the priest in his pulpit, the professor at his podium, the journalist at the typewriter, the lies stuck like a fishbone in the throat of the microphone, the handheld lies of the prowling cameraman, end quote. Annie Holmquist says it is these lies that are presently hurtling our society toward another dark age. Muggridge later noted in a series of lectures he gave, now published in Christ and the Media. He said, The first dark ages are lost in the mists of antiquity with virtually no records. The coming dark ages will be equally lost in the blaze of studio lighting with a superabundance of records, almost all falsified. And Annie Holmquist says the Hunter Biden story seems to have proved his point. The question is, how do we keep from getting caught up in all these lies that we are constantly fed? Now listen close. She's got some great answers here. Awareness is the first step. Knowing that the media and many public figures are likely spouting deceptive information should help us approach every news item or idea, even if it seems to come from a friendly source, with healthy skepticism. Such healthy skepticism grows out of an educated mind that doesn't simply rely on knowledge of present times, but looks to history and its figures to recognize repeated patterns and discern which ones to avoid. Finally, she says we need to have a close relationship with truth. Muggridge explains that this relationship begins when we come out of the shadows of Plato's cave that the media has put us in and walk toward reality. Quote, Christ shows us reality, what life really is, what it is really about, and our true destiny in belonging to it. We escape from the cave, we emerge from the darkness, and instead of shadows, we have all around us the glory of God's creation. Instead of darkness, light. Instead of despair, hope. Instead of time and talks clicking, ticking rather inexorably on eternity, which never began and never ends, and yet is sublimely now. End quote. In other words, Annie says, walk toward the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, I know for some people that, hey, this just kind of took a, an uncomfortable religious turn. But I'm going to echo what she's saying here. I believe that, uh, I believe that God is the ultimate source of truth. And I think the beauty of that uh, observation is that the ultimate source of truth will not lie to you. Now, not everybody wants to access that source. I understand that. It can be daunting, you know, even to admit that there might be a, an ultimate source of truth. I mean, that kind of puts some accountability on us, or at least it, it, uh, it puts things in a different context of, hey, you know what, really there's nothing, so, you know, eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want. Uh, life is short. Party hardy. Rock and roll. You know, you ain't going to have much time. All I know is that when I have made truth a priority in my life, Few things have made it easier for me to sort fact from fiction and truth from error than working on my relationship with my creator. So, if you find yourself wondering, how do I dispel this gathering darkness? That's actually one of the first places that I would recommend. I would also echo Annie Holmquist's recommendation. Get acquainted with what happened before you arrived on this planet. Don't just learn about the historical facts and dates. Learn about the people. Learn about how they thought. Expose yourself to their minds and see what they observed. You'd be surprised what you can learn. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. HSLAmmo.com is one of my sponsors. That's uh, Spencer Worthington's company. Yep, you want to uh, turn your uh, money into skill at arms? Ammo is going to have to be a part of that. And if you're going to buy ammo, you might as well buy it from my friend Spencer at HSLAmmo.com. Now, I'm going to have Spencer on the show. Hopefully, I'm hoping this next week we can get a time set up to get him on the program. Spencer, in addition to, uh, to being a great businessman, is someone who has walked the walk of learning how to live with frugality. And so I've asked him, hey, would you come on my show and talk about the joy of a life of frugality? And this may, you know, for some people, it may be, like, Brian, are you preaching against capitalism? Are you preaching against, you know, uh, the, the abundance of, of, uh, of prosperous society? Not at all. But I'm also uh, recognizing that uh, things are, are tightening financially. I think for most people, even people with significant means, it's, it's not as easy as it was. And I think uh, frugality is one of those virtues that uh, a lot of people are going to discover, some voluntarily, many, you know, without having a choice in the, in the matter. But Spencer's got a story to tell, and he's got some advice to give that I think would really benefit you. So mark that on your calendar that uh, we'll have him on the show and talk a little bit about uh, what he can share with us. All right, we've all heard the phrase, okay, boomer. And it's, it's just more evidence. Yes, the generation gap is a constant. It's always going on. You know, the, the older generations worry about these younger whippersnappers who need to get a haircut and straighten up and fly right, you know. But uh, John Miltimore says, OK, Boomer may actually become the battle cry in the first salvo of a larger generational showdown. Now, specifically, he's talking about how baby boomers might have paid into Social Security, but millennials and Generation Z are being asked to pay a lot more for a program that will offer them less in return. Now, I've heard some people, I think it was uh, Jim Quinn from the Burning Platform, say the the debt that has been run up with the expectation that, well, following generations will pay that debt is the greatest example of intergenerational theft in the history of the planet. And I think we're about to find out if that's true or not. If it's true, we, we will see generational warfare taking place. Sorry, that sounds kind of dark, but, uh, you know, if you were to run up this massive debt and then just leave it for your descendants, your kids, your grandkids, their kids, does that strike you as a moral thing to do? I don't know. Something about that to me just does not seem honest, moral, or ethical. John Miltimore says, according to Smithsonian Magazine, an Assyrian clay tablet from 2800 B.C. bears a gloomy inscription describing how the Assyrian youth were ruining civilization. Supposedly, the tablet reads, our earth is degenerate in these days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Now, the inscription is reminiscent of another that, according to Newsweek, was unearthed in the Sumerian city of Ur, located in modern-day Iraq, and founded in 3800 B.C., which says, If the unheard-of actions of today's youth are allowed to continue, then we are doomed. Now, whether these tablets actually exist is unclear. Snopes, you know, where are you when we need you? But he says what matters is that variations of these quotes have been circulating for at least a century, and there's a reason for that. Few will disagree that there's a tendency for generations to characterize, uh, caricaturize one another. The young tend to see the old as fuddy-duds and scolds, while the old tend to view the young as disrespectful, lazy, and rebellious. And nowhere is this more evident than in the current OK Boomer movement. 
Now, if you're not familiar, OK Boomer is an Internet meme and catchphrase that went viral in 2019. It's used by Gen Z and millennials to mock baby boomers grousing about their work ethic and attitudes. Now, to be fair, young people have something to grump about. And he says, I say this is a Gen Xer who has no skin in the game. They've been accused of being emotionally fragile, sexless, lazy ingrates who are going to die faster than everyone else. So there. But Miltimore says the extent to which any of these characterizations is true is open to debate, as is the extent to which baby boomers and Gen Xers actually believe these things. One could argue that much of the discontent is driven by weak social science and media who fan outrage to gin up clicks. What matters is that young people are getting a little tired of the caricatures evidenced by the commercial sex or commercial success rather sorry Dr. Freud of okay boomer merchandise in turn baby boomers appear to be irritated by the young upstarts who are clapping back by the way one of the greatest christmas presents my kids ever gave me was 3 years ago uh, they gave me a nice black t-shirt that says weird flex but okay boomer and i wear it proudly to this day being a gen xer i have the privilege of doing so what matters is that uh, th- those caricatures are creating divisions. And uh, John Miltimore points to uh, Myrna Blythe, senior vice president and editorial director at AARP, who told Axios, okay, millennials, but we're the people that actually have the money. Now, the Internet exploded over Blythe's comment, of course, and the AARP quickly disavowed her words. And while the over the overreaction to Blythe's comment is much ado about nothing. He says it foreshadows a greater conflict ahead. So John Miltimore says the baby boomers might have the money, as Blythe puts it, but they're also leaning on millennials and Gen Z to collect more of their paychecks. About 44 million Americans received Social Security benefits in 2018, and roughly 34 million of those were baby boomers, who continue to retire at a clip of roughly 10000 per per day. Now, that's a lot of retirees to support. And before you begrudge boomers too much, consider a few things. First, boomers contributed lots of money to Social Security over the years themselves. Second, most of them are banking on that Social Security income, one of the proverbial three legs of the retirement stool, along with pensions, employer-sponsored accounts, and personal savings. Third, boomers haven't done a great job building out the other two legs. 45% say they have no retirement savings. So many of them really need those Social Security checks, even if they have less debt and more equity than any other generation. Nevertheless, Gen Z and millennials have some legit gripes. Baby boomers might have paid into Social Security, but millennials and Generation Z are being asked to pay a lot more for a program that will likely offer them less in return. In 1960, when the oldest boomers started paying Social Security, they paid 3% on income up to $4,800. That'd be roughly $41,000 in 2018 dollars. By 1970, they were paying 4.8% on the first $7,800, or $51,000 in 2018 dollars. By 1980, when the youngest boomers were hitting the workforce, they were paying 6.13% on the first 25900 of income roughly equivalent to 80000 in 2018. Workers today, on the other hand, are you sitting down, are paying 6.2% on income up to $132,900. Now, that's a far greater contribution, if you can call it that, by a long shot. And the problem is, it's nowhere near enough. Next year, the New York Times reports, for the first time in nearly 40 years, 
Social Security will begin drawing down its assets to pay retirees their promised benefits. Without program changes, the trust will be depleted within 15 years. Then, something that's been unimaginable for decades would be required under current law. Benefit checks for retirees would be cut by about 20% across the board. Now, does anyone think retirees are just going to sit back and take a 20% shave on their retirement? No way. So what happens? Well, it's hard to say, says John Miltimore. But first we have to recognize this is not going to be an easy fix. The question is, who's going to budge? One of the problems with Social Security is that as the program has aged, fewer and fewer workers are supporting more and more retirees. In 1945, there were 42 workers per beneficiary. By 1960, there were just over five workers per beneficiary. And from 1970 through the 2000s, there were between three and four workers for every retiree. Today, 2.8 workers cover each retiree's benefits, according to the Social Security Administration. By 2030, there will be just 2.4 workers supporting each retiree. And in Europe... That worker-retiree ratio is even lower. So however you slice the data, it's clear that to sustain its growing population, Social Security will require much bigger contributions. Okay, column taxes, FICA, whatever. The point is the coming generations will be asked to pony up a lot more. How much? Well, the trustees of the Social Security program project the cash flow deficit over the next 80 years to reach a staggering $44.2 trillion. That's according to economist Veronique Derugi. That's trillion with a T. To put that figure into perspective, total federal revenues in 2019 amounted to $3.46 trillion. Now, John Miltimore says there are pathways to making Social Security solvent, of course. Most of them involve young people paying more in taxes and retiring later. To fund Social Security for a generation that's 12 times wealthier than they are. So the irony of it all is almost too much. The lazy millennials and self-absorbed Gen Zers will soon be asked to cough up trillions to cover the retirements of the boomers who mercilessly mock them, all to fund a program that most millennials worry will not even exist by the time they reach retirement. One can't help but wonder if when called upon to pay these obligations, millennials and Gen Z will just cock their heads and reply, Okay, boomer. Wow. Yeah, we got a problem on our hands. Be interesting to see how this one shakes out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I can't think of any nice way to tell you this, so I'm just going to tell it straight up. Most of the information sources in your life are lying to you. In fact, I would encourage you, don't even take what I say as, uh, you know, gospel truth. The purpose of this program is to convince people like you and me to think as clearly and independently as we possibly can, to really weigh the information before us, and to trust our own intuition and our own ability to understand and decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong, what is fact, what is fiction. 
I know there's a there's a whole slew of institutions out there trying to teach you. You're not good enough to do this. You're broken. You're not smart enough. Where's your degree? Where's your credentials? But there's an awful lot of deception out there, and I'm here to help you cut through it, not by telling you what to think, but by helping you become such a self-sufficient thinker that eventually you are going to leave me in your dust as you continue on your path toward the truth. And I think the, the important thing to remember is I will take it as a confident, when, as a compliment, rather, when you outgrow me. Maybe not everybody will, but I will, because that's a sure sign that uh, you are truly running under your own power and not uh, running on borrowed light. None of us should be running on borrowed light. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the pattern that we are seeing where the FBI supposedly stopped some high-profile terrorist conspiracy only to later be revealed during the trial as the fabricators of the scheme. James Bovard takes us inside the FBI's probe and entrapment of a Michigan militia crew. You're not going to hear a lot about this in mainstream media other than, I don't understand why the jury didn't, you know, find these people guilty. Well, thank goodness for juries. Because uh, that's, that's the one thing that seems to be acting as a bulwark against just widespread, unstoppable government tyranny. James Bovard writes, the FBI got walloped last week when a Michigan jury concluded that the Bureau had entrapped two men accused of plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Those those men and others were arrested a few weeks before the 2020 election in a high-profile FBI-fabricated case that Joe Biden claimed showed President Trump's tolerance of hate, vengeance, and lawlessness to plots such as this one. But the jury verdict exposes how the feds have created the monsters they parade to vindicate their vast power over Americans. He says Michigan was a swing state in the 2020 election. When the arrests were announced, Whitmer speedily denounced Trump for inciting domestic terrorism. Biden won the 2020 election because of the early voting and the Michigan kidnapping plot was one of the biggest stories in October 2020. Prior to the presidential election, Attorney General Bill Barr assured that the news did not leak about multiple federal investigations into Hunter Biden. But the FBI felt no constraints like this and trumpeted a ludicrous scheme that was shot down even by a jury that a federal judge had largely blindfolded. Now, James Bovard says Whitmer enraged many Michiganders by placing the entire state under house arrest after the outbreak of COVID-19. Anyone who left their home to visit family or friends risked a $1,000 fine and business owners faced three years in prison for refusing to close their stores. Unemployment soared to 24% statewide, but Whitmer's policies failed to prevent more than 2 million Michiganders from contacting COVID. Or contracting COVID, rather. Whitmer was denounced at protests in the Facebook page of the Wolverine Watchmen, where angry anti-government bluster poured forth. Facebook chief Mark Zuckerberg testified to Congress in October 2020 that Facebook had identified the Whitmer kidnap plot as a signal to the FBI about six months ago regarding suspicious activity on our platform. But the plot didn't exist at that point. That is until multiple government-paid newcomers joined the group. Stephen Robeson, an FBI informant with a list of felonies and other crimes, organized key events to build the movement. Dan Chappell, another FBI informant who was paid $54,000, became second in command and masterminded the military training for the group, even as he helped the feds wiretap their messages. 
through se- though several militia members explicitly opposed kidnapping the governor, Chapelson and Chapel rather and Robeson helped hatch a ludicrous plot to snatch Whitmer from her vacation home and take her away for trial. FBI operatives took the participants who prattled idiotically about stealing a Black Hawk helicopter for drives near Whitmer's vacation home, which supposedly proved they were going to nab the governor and unleash havoc. It was all a setup. Shortly before that excursion, an FBI agent texted instructions to Chapel. mission is to kill the governor specifically. There were as many FBI informants and undercover agents as there were purported plotters in this case. The conspiracy began unraveling even before the trial began last March. Robert Trask, the lead FBI agent and the public face of the kidnapping case, was fired after he was arrested for beating his wife during an argument over an orgy the two had attended at a hotel in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The New York Times reported this. Other Two other key FBI agents were sidelined from the case for misconduct, including creating a side hustle with his own cybersecurity firm. When the arrests were announced in October 2020, a top Justice Department attorney proclaimed that the case showed that our state and federal governments are working together to keep us all safe. But the case actually illustrated how the Supreme Court and federal judges have entitled federal agencies to create the crimes they claim to thwart. Prior to the 1970s, defendants often successfully challenged entrapment as a violation of due process. But in 1973, the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, gutted most defenses against government entrapment by focusing almost solely on the subjective disposition of the entrapped person. If prosecutors can find any inkling of a defendant's disposition to the crime, then the person is guilty, no matter how outrageous or abusive the government agent's behavior. Justice William Brennan dissented, warning that the decision could empower law enforcement agents to round up and jail all predisposed individuals. Now, entrapment operations exploded thanks to those court rulings. Trevor Aronson, author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, estimated that only about 1% of the 500 people charged with international terrorism offenses in the decade after 9-11 were bona fide threats. 1%? Wow. 30 times as many were induced by the FBI to behave in ways that prompted their arrest. Thanks to Supreme Court rulings minimizing entrapment defenses, federal judge Robert Jonker blocked defense attorneys from informing the jury of almost all the evidence of federal misconduct in the Whitmer case. As Budfeed's Ken Bezinger reports, the jury refused to convict despite the government's extraordinary efforts to muzzle the defense. Prosecutors went to extraordinary lengths to exclude evidence and witnesses that might undermine their arguments while winning the right to bring almost anything favorable to their own side. Now, BuzzFeed noted that the judge ruled the defendants could not inquire about the past conduct of several FBI agents, though the government would be allowed to question the defendants about episodes in their own past. And the jury thankfully saw enough to smell a federal rat. Now, James Bovard reports the Times reported in January the Michigan case was one of the most significant recent domestic terrorism cases, a test of Washington's commitment to pursue far-right groups who seek to kindle a violent anti-government insurgency. That's what FBI Chief Christopher Wray told Congress last year. The FBI has 2,000 ongoing domestic terrorism investigations. How many additional crimes or conspiracies is the FBI fomenting this moment? 
Will Americans ever learn what role, if any, the FBI had in goading some of those arrested in the January 6th Capitol clash? And what about Team Biden's efforts to continually expand the definition of dangerous extremist to sanctify its power? Last June, the Biden administration revealed that guys who can't get laid may be terrorist threats due to involuntary celibate violent extremism. Now, that terrorist watch list is expanding faster than the list of White House clarifications after Biden's verbal blunders. Who entitled the FBI to entrap anyone whose ideas they disapprove? Will the Michigan debacle derail Biden's campaign to portray government critics as dangerous extremists who must be hounded and suppressed? After the arrests were announced in 2020, Whitmer denounced Trump. When our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions. They are complicit, said Whitmer. But James Bovard says, what about politicians who make no effort to control the law enforcement agencies they unleash to punish innocent Americans? Wow. By the way, there there is... Uh, there's a court filing that has come out just recently, like within the last week, that indicates as much as 20 federal assets. I don't know if they were FBI or otherwise, but at least 20 federal assets were part of the January 6th crowd that was there at the Capitol. I don't know if that changes anything in your mind, but at least it explains a lot of uh, the instigation that seemed to be going on in the days prior to and the day of the, those events. Basically, if the feds are saying it, you have every reason in the world to be deeply skeptical. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you would like to subscribe to my show notes, I do make this easy for you. Just go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, click on show notes, pick a day, any day. Scroll to the bottom of that day's show notes, and there's a big button that says subscribe. It'll ask for your email. That's really all I require. No cost. Just I, I will keep your email. with. It's just between you and me. I'm not going to sell it or share it with anybody else. And I will drop a copy of those uh, show notes into your uh, inbox each day that I do the show. Something you can use to, you know, fill out your free time with some study and reading and research on your own. I try to find the best sources that I can. So I, I, I hope it's something that you'll avail yourself of. Plenty of resources for wrong thinkers out there. I'm just doing my best to help connect people up with good, reliable sources. What you do with the information after that, well, that's up to you. Well, the issue of free speech certainly seems to be coming to a head, and the uh, Elon Musk versus Twitter saga is just one facet of it. Got an article here from D.F. Mulder talking about the pushback that is beginning against the uh, the woke left. And in his take, his look, the left did this to themselves. You know, they're they're wondering, you know, why are people pushing back? Why why are people being so hateful and questioning what we say and not doing what we tell them? And his answer is, well, you did this to yourself. D.F. Mulder writes, the standard for free speech these days is basically if it offends someone, it can and should be censored. After all, feelings come first. If it's witty, if it is offensive, if, God forbid, it's hateful, it must go. Scrub it from the Internet. That's the standard set by the left, set in stone by big tech, and consecrated by the cultural Marxist state. 
Now, he says, look, leftists can't have it both ways, but they don't understand that, partly because they keep driving out their more gifted members. If you want free speech for the voices of sexual liberation, you must tolerate it for more traditional, sexually temperate voices. If you want free speech for BLM and other pro-black activists, you have to permit speech for dissident rightists, and too, including white advocates. That is, if you want to be morally and philosophically consistent. The left wants to have its cake and eat it, too, and that just doesn't work long term. Those terrible, self-serving standards tend to boomerang back on the standard barriers. For instance, a number of pro-LGBTQ blah, 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 blah teachers in one school district in Texas are reportedly upset that they cannot express their support for gay pride in the classroom and on their vehicles. Some are even being pushed out of their jobs on account of their activism. Now they know how righties have felt for decades in America. We've long been terrified that if we speak out, our livelihoods will be threatened, we'll be publicly harangued and shamed, or worse still, we'll be charged with hate crimes. Yet the dominant forces on the political left have consistently celebrated the persecution of actual dissidents. Now these teachers claim it's unbearably oppressive to not be able to stand up for what they believe in at work. Well, try walking in the shoes of someone really reviled and opposed by the U.S. power structure. These teachers say they wish to be role models and teach their students to stand up for what they believe in. But what has the Texas legislature been doing? Are state representatives who restrict overt, overwhelmingly left-wing political activism not standing up for their own beliefs and their own people? These pro-gay teachers are only for you standing up for what you believe in when they approve of and agree with what you believe in. We're told that gay and trans teens need the presence of rainbow flags and pride stickers to feel safe. How that makes someone feel safe is beyond me. Stickers don't actually make anyone safe, just as cops do not actually make anyone safe. They may make some people feel safe, but it's basically an illusion rooted in myth and state propaganda. The government's mindless muscle may be symbols of safety to some, but they're symbols of terror and state criminality to others, and for good reason. Some people find rainbow flags beautiful, others find them loathsome. Such is the nature of all symbolism and expression. Everything is open to interpretation by the listener or viewer. You can strongly feel that your rainbow flag or pride pin is a symbol of inclusion. But a lot of folks find such symbols noxious, alienating, scandalous, and threatening. Many folks lack the imagination to understand why that is, but it is. One person's pride is another person's deprecation. The messy culture wars in Texas are a backlash against decades of illiberal abuse by the political left. Conservative legislatures are giving leftists a dose of their own medicine. It's a readily observable reality that the lay of the sociocultural land allows lefties to express themselves whenever, but does not allow righties to do the same. Gay pride is glorious. Straight pride is despicable and stupid. Black pride is necessary. White pride is hate. The list of double standards is endless. It only ever goes one way. And that's why a number of states have passed laws over the last decade preventing school districts from essentially endorsing certain viewpoints on charged issues, banning critical race theory that can be justified on far more grounds than just this one, including the ugly fact that brainwashing young white children to hate themselves is frankly quite diabolical if not child abuse, and will invariably have all kinds of negative long-term effects on the psychological well-being of white children. But what these laws really come down to is the political right reacting to a socio-political arrangement where only one viewpoint is truly admitted, namely the leftist viewpoint, 
the one that aligns with the prevailing Wokshevik zeitgeist. Well, the right is fed up with it. And so where it can, it is understandably doing what the left is always too eager to do, namely silencing its political opponents. Ultimately, you can have free speech for all or none in any place that demands moral consistency. Thus, that is how it tends to go in more sophisticated contexts like the law. In society at large, including the free market, double standards reign. The government context is not society at large, however. The right cannot openly silence the left in the governmental legal context, as the left does to the right in other contexts, so it's opted for the next best thing, namely bans on fundamentally political and or ideological educational methods and curricula. In other words, category-wide bans on speech. The impetus behind these laws is a desire to level the playing field and stop the indoctrination. Since the left has nearly all the cultural power in modern America, the right must righteously fight from whatever terrain it still possesses against a creepy and creeping crypto-Bolshevik totalism. People who get punched in the mouth for thinking freely are liable to eventually punch back. If the leftists had their way, none of us would have Twitter accounts. Half of us already don't. The left has no desire to give us any say over our own future or any influence in our hallowed democracy. After all, the last time they did that, we got Trumpian fascism. Thomas Paine once wrote, He who would make his own liberty secure must guard even his enemy from oppression. For if he violates this duty, he establishes a precedent that will reach to himself. So the left has nothing to gripe about. If a gay and pro-gay teacher can express can no longer express themselves on campus, that's their own doing. If you don't respect the voices of your adversaries, your adversaries and the standards you establish for censorship are liable to come back to haunt you. Censorship is not consistent with a free society. It never has been. And until the left demonstrates a commitment to the free speech rights of everyone, its own rights to free speech will and perhaps should remain imperiled. Now, I think this is true. I think that uh, what uh, what D.F. Mulder is saying here, it rings very true. But I'm going to I'm going to disagree in the sense that uh, I still maintain that two wrongs are not going to make a right. And by two wrongs uh, not making a right, I mean using government as the arbiter of what is okay and what is not is fraught with danger. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there and, you know, agree or disagree. Every issue that we hand off to government and say, I have a problem, can you solve this for me? When you put it into the hands of government to be solved, you are creating a problem. You're politicizing it. That's not fixing the problem so much as it's turning it into a power struggle. This is exactly what we're seeing play out in our classrooms over things like CRT and, you know, teaching young kids, you know, how to put a condom on a banana using your mouth. Oh, you don't think that happens? No, it, it does. And and the thing is, if you speak up against such things, <laughs> well, then you're the one who is being hateful and closed-minded. First thing that has to happen is separation of school and state. Barring that, parents, you may want to get your kids out of these highly politicized arenas. But you've also got to be willing to speak the truth, even if it's not the popular thing to do. Good luck with all that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
And just like that, we are back. I want to give a shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather has been one of my great sponsors now for uh, for quite some time. And I'm very thankful for all that she does, not just for helping keep me on the air, but also for what she is doing for people who are actively looking for a loan, a home loan, a VA loan, traditional loans, reverse mortgages. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the clout, and decades of experience to help you get the loan you need without delay. So for my listeners in Utah or in Idaho, if you are looking for a home loan and if you're shopping for a home, you know uh, you find the one of your dreams. It's not going to sit on the market for long. It's long. It's a very competitive real estate market. You need to go in knowing what you're qualified for. Talk to Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Call her at 435-703-4522. Click the email link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So, the war on woke capitalism. I'm excited to talk about this one a little bit, and especially in the context of, is cryptocurrency here to stay, or is it just a passing fad? I know that uh, that's really up for debate by a lot of people, and I wanted to share with you an article by Jeff, I'm sorry, Mark Jeftovic via bombthrower.com. Five big takeaways from Bitcoin 2022 in Miami. Now, Mark says, last week was a blur. Planes, trains, and automobiles from Toronto through to Salt Lake City to tape a couple of segments for revealed films. And then on to Miami for the largest cryptocurrency conference in the world with an estimated 30,000-ish attendees showing up to take the decentralized revolution to the next level. Here are the five big takeaways from this year's conference. Number one. Bitcoin is well past the here-to-stay phase. Now, we've been hearing the crypto is here-to-stay mantra for a few years now. It's not wrong, but he says we're well beyond that point. He says, I knew as far back as 2017 the crypto wasn't going anywhere, even after the 2018 bear market set in. We're now into the Bitcoin is taking over the world phase. In other words, the early innings of hyper-Bitcoinization. Same as what happened with the Internet after the dot-com bust. Any credentialed experts who said the Internet was a glorified fax machine, Krugman, were wrong then, and anybody still pounding the table about cryptos being backed by nothing and headed for zero, Schiff, are being proved wrong now. The only question is to what extent Bitcoin overtakes the fiat economy, whether it becomes an official global reserve asset or functions outside the system entirely as increasingly more individuals and locales Opt out of the fiat world order. Two more political autonomous zones did just that, announcing Bitcoin as legal tender. Madeira, an autonomous region of Portugal, and Prosperos, a private chartered city in Honduras. And while Mexican Senator Indiris Kempis came to the conference to announce she's introducing legislation to make Bitcoin legal tender in Mexico. Takeaway number two, this is a big one, There will be no crypto ban in the developed world. There's still a major factor in many people's calculus on uh, whether they should get involved with cryptos or not. And it's been clear in the U.S. since at least the tuck into the the COVID infrastructure bill, as ill-formed as it is, that the U.S. approach toward crypto will be a regulatory one rather than prohibitory. In in the Kathy Woods, uh, Michael Saylor fireside at the conference, Woods noted the change in rhetoric coming out of Janet Yellen in just this last year. 
Last year, Yellen was harping on crypto's use in illicit transactions. Now she's talking about how they're playing a significant role, not really so much in transactions, but in investment decisions of lots of Americans. Somebody has been whispering into Yellen's ear, opined Woods. Her guess, SEC head Gary Gensler. Saylor put the Biden executive order into context. When was the last time that the sitting president of the United States issued an executive order for all federal agencies to get up to speed on an asset class? Framing that as not presaging a crypto ban, but the de facto green light for the entire space. Now, there are numerous reasons for this, including being a leading innovator in crypto is increasingly seen as a net positive economically for the countries that adopt it. Secondly, they provide a strategic advantage over countries that are attempting to ban it, like China. Three, there's already too much institutional money already involved or positioning to get involved. And four, with more than 30 million Americans and 300 million citizens globally hodling, Bitcoiners are already a political constituency. There's even a Bitcoin-backed super PAC whose stated aim is to rid the government of anti-Bitcoin politicians like Brad Sherman and Elizabeth Warren. Okay, the third takeaway is that there can only be one. Over the last half year or so, the crypto capitalist letter was starting to gain steam, forcing me to pay even closer attention to all this. Mark says, I noticed that I was becoming more of a Bitcoin maximalist, hopefully not a toxic one. He says, I still try to think like an investor, and in that sense, there will be successful projects and ecosystems outside of Bitcoin. He says, I like helium, for example. The idea of a mesh network being driven by incentives of hotspot operators is a compelling one. Given my day job running Easy DNS, I pay particular attention to decentralized naming initiatives like ENS, HS, HNS, Unstoppable, and Stacks, though I don't see any clear winners in here yet. On the privacy side, especially since the Freedom Convoy debacle in Canada, he says, I've become more interested in Monero. But stocks like the tactical focus of TCC being cryptic, crypto stocks, and as the case is the case in most asset classes, the vast majority of contenders and aspirants are garbage, money grabs, often both. So he says, alas, where I had been previously thinking of Ethereum as the undisputed runner-up to Bitcoin, the silver to gold, well, he says, the shine has been coming off for me. The biggest existential challenge facing Ethereum is and has always been the gas fees. Now, he says, the entire time I was monitoring Ethereum's all-encompassing transformation from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake, I just assumed that the merge to Ethereum 2 would fix this. Then in late 2021, places like Bankless and elsewhere, he says, I started to see this notion being walked back. So it almost seems like Ethereum's central management, which really isn't a thing in Bitcoin, decided to prioritize the perceived environmental social governance benefits, which is most important to people who don't actually understand crypto. Otherwise, they would be cognizant of mining's true energy usage. Further, they would understand how uh, proof-of-work incentivizes clean and waste energy capture more effectively than anything else. So, in a nutshell, when he says there can only be one, he's saying that Bitcoin will probably be the dominant cryptocurrency. There's more to this, but I'll let you discover this for, for yourself. Number four, this is more than an asset. He says, crypto is a spiritual philosophy. The Thank God for Bitcoin conference ran a one-day event concurrent with Bitcoin 2022. There's a larger contingent of Christians with Bitcoin than he says, I realized. Beyond that, there's a general sense of the underlying spirituality behind a movement that truly restores economic sovereignty to anyone who wants it, with effectively zero barriers to entry. 
that there is a spiritual component to sound money is not new. Gold carried or carries the same gravitas among the most highly respected and penetrating intellectual minds throughout history that has endured into today. Jordan B. Peterson came to Bitcoin 2022. And one of his most well-known lectures is around the psychological meaning of the Tower of Babel parable. In a fireside with Tour de Mester, he drew a through line from it to Austrian school economics to Brexit. And it made perfect sense. Because Babel is a story of technocratic hubris, very similar to what we're subjected to on a mass scale today. He built on that in the after-conference with Robert Breedlove, citing the Austrian school notion that monetary integrity and moral integrity are inextricably linked. So isn't that something? There is an underlying spiritual driver behind Bitcoin. I think it's probably based in that need to be sovereign, to be free. And finally, this was takeaway number five, the war on wokeness has begun. This was Peter Thiel's keynote, which was described as a declaration of war against woke capitalism. And he's got a link to the video of the entire speech. He says, you should pay attention to this, because if the Wall Street Journal is reporting on it as any indication, mainstream coverage was your typical journalistic malpractice. Now, Germany is scrambling right now, looking at, looking at rationing power. They're in the early stages of reversing their own policy of shutting down their nuclear reactors. They're, they're even considering re- recommissioning coal-fired power plants. Turns out you can't heat the nation on hot air and platitudes. So the bottom line here is the true cost of wokeness is starting to hit home. Germany is seeing it. We're seeing it first at the gas pumps here in North America. We're seeing it in energy shortages and rationing abroad. Next up will be out-of-control food inflation. They don't call them mealworms for nothing. So the veneer is coming off woke capitalism, and everybody knows it. This is a fascinating article. I hope it's one you'll take a look at, and there's there's a wealth of information. There's enough to keep you going through the whole weekend if you really want to dig deep into this article. Again, it's in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It will cost you absolutely nothing to uh, click on that link, follow it to its logical ends. Likewise, it won't cost you a dime to go ahead and subscribe to my show notes for yourself. Just scroll down to the bottom, look for the big subscribe button, drop in your email. It's as simple as that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with our final segment right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Once again, I want to give a shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. I have not only, uh, you know, spoken the, the gospel of preparedness and self-reliance for many, many years, but I've also walked the walk. And there is real peace of mind that comes from knowing you have the resources to take care of yourself and take care of your family, maybe even help your neighbors out in a pinch. This is why I want you to click on the link that I provide in my show notes that's for lifesavingfood.com. You will find something to fit any possible budget that's something that will further your efforts at self-reliance. Click on the link, see for yourself whether you're just getting started or whether you're a long-time seasoned prepper. 
Lifesavingfood.com will save you money. They have plenty of stuff in stock. Yes, prices are going up, but this is true of everything that we face right now. The key is to be ahead of the curve before demand becomes so great that stocks start to run out and people are panicking and buying whatever they can for whatever price. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Just do it and sleep better at night knowing that you took the steps to better secure yourself against the uncertainty of a world that is getting crazier by the day. I don't know how many of you remember the uh, Rajneesh cult that became kind of a power center in Oregon nearly 40 years ago. Got a great article here from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. And it's titled, A Study of Cultism Shows Us Why Gatekeeping Against Leftists is a Good Thing. He says, one of my favorite quotes of all time comes from writer and director Oliver Stone, who's once said that hell is the impossibility of reason. In other words, if truth and logic are eradicated within a society, then any hope for redemption or peace is lost. The world becomes a perpetual nightmare. He says, I was reminded of this recently as I watched a documentary series called Wild Wild Country about the bizarre events surrounding a cult that actually tried to hijack the state of Oregon in the 1980s. Now, Brandon Smith says, I've had a long-time fascination with religious cultism, mainly because these groups show us how easily and how far modern humanity can fall into the madness of collectivism and zealotry, given the right circumstances. So, this particular documentary is an examination of the Rajneesh cult, which was a global news phenomenon that had infiltrated the U.S. in 1981. The movement was led spiritually by a man known as Rajneesh, who would later call himself Osho. Osho's religion revolved around a mishmash of Eastern philosophies and an odd political ideology in which he praised the use of capitalism to create wealth as long as the ultimate end goal was socialism or the forced redistribution of wealth. And he says, I I was particularly struck by the number of similarities between the Rajneesh and today's iteration of progressive social justice leftists. Now, Brandon Smith goes, this isn't some loose association on my part where leftists like to falsely compare everyone that disagrees with them to Nazis in order to diminish their views and criticisms. The comparisons between them and religious cultists are so evident, it's mind-boggling. And he says, I've long said that in order to understand social justice groups, we must also understand how cultism works. So he says, I think that needs to be examined in more detail, and the story of the Rajneesh is a perfect allegory. So how is the political left like a cult? Well, let's count the ways. Elitism in the name of equality. A rather clever ploy by Osho was his praise of capitalism for the sake of socialism. This allowed Osho to amass a considerable fortune by pilfering the pockets of his followers without looking hypocritical in the process. He owned at least 93 Rolls Royces if this gives you any indication of his personal priorities. Wealth in the pursuit of socialism is actually a common idea among the elites. In other words, it's okay for select people within a socialist collectivist society to retain large amounts of property because they are special. We've seen this most recently with leftists in the form of BLM. One of the the founders of the largest BLM groups had been caught on multiple occasions misappropriating donations and funds for their own personal gain rather than support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Brandon says, this is not at all surprising to me, but many people who donated to the cause are now incensed to discover BLM founders openly drinking champagne as they celebrate their victory over white supremacy while sitting in a $6 million mansion they secretly purchased with donation funds. Whoops. 
In every communist socialist project in history, the call is for the redistribution of wealth and power to the people, but all that happens is the formation of a new elite lording over a new peasant class. And as with most cults, this dynamic is justified as if the new elite is representative of a victory for equality. The peasants or underlings are supposed to live vicariously through the elevation and extravagance of the leaders. Secondly, Cults fill the spiritual void with narcissism. On the religious side, the Rajneesh movement was not at all unique. They followed the exact same model as the Theosophical movement, which was founded in 1875, slapping together various elements of misaligned religions as well as the occult into a single entity they called a world religion. In fact, he says, I would say that Rajneesh was nothing more than a ripoff or reiteration of theosophy. The goal of Theosophical movements is essentially to appeal to one principle, do as thou wilt. That is to say, there are no boundaries in life, and everything that creates boundaries is an unjust suppression of your true potential. Another factor which comes up very often in these philosophies is the idea of self-worship. Any notion of a god or greater design takes a backseat to the pursuit of one's own greatness or comfort, no matter the cost. It is this underlying mantra of zero boundaries and the demonization of self-control, discipline, and responsibility that permeates cults and world religions. And not surprisingly, the same attitude is ever-present within social justice movements and the political left today. Now, of course, the promise of individual freedom and self-exploration without restrictions is always false. There tends to be far more control and oppression within cults than in most mainstream religions. These movements buy followers by offering them a place to act on their darkest impulses without consequence. But once they're hooked into that life, they're enslaved in other ways. The vast majority of social justice arguments revolve around the worship of victimhood. It is a religion of self-aggrandizement through self-immolation. Activists see themselves as living martyrs and expect to be treated as such at all times. Beyond that, victim status is seen as a currency that allows a person to buy attention, adoration, and the right to bad behavior. The more of a victim you are, the more you can do whatever you want without being held responsible. Some of the behaviors of the Rajneesh crossed into the realm of authoritarianism, even terrorism. But the entire time, the cult asserted that they were being attacked and victimized by the people of Oregon. The Rajneesh hyper-focused on the idea that boundaries are a violation of the spiritual and emotional life of the activist or cultist. But many boundaries exist for a reason. They protect us from being assimilated into mass insanity and the crimes of madmen. Discrimination in some forms is good. Discrimination is a biological imperative. But leftists want to be able to do all things at all times, no matter how irrational or destructive, and if you say no, then you are a bigot. They victimize you, and then if you try to stop them, they cry out that you are victimizing them. So leftism is at bottom an organized cult of narcissists. Then there's the matter of assimilation posing as democracy. Now, Brandon Smith goes into some detail on this, but he says the story of Rajneesh might seem bizarre without context, but if you understand the social and political ideals involved, it makes perfect sense. Think of it in terms of the natural tendency of collectivists and leftists to do these four things, invade, indoctrinate, dominate, and then eradicate. I'm not going to go into great detail here because I want to get on to another thing that he points out, and that is the normalization of depravity and insanity. He talks about how for the Rajneesh cult, 
winning local elections became a priority, and the solution was to start a hidden lab on compound grounds with the purpose of developing biological weapons. They they wanted to poison as many of the residents of the county as possible with salmonella planted in multiple restaurants and buffets using hidden spray canisters. And they hoped that so many people would have to stay home from sickness that the elections could be manipulated in favor of the cult. The scheme failed, but 751 people suffered food poisoning that one week in 1984. But you see what they were doing? The ends justify the means. He talks about the therapy sessions that they gave. And he says the political left is in so many ways a cult similar to the one that tried to hijack Oregon 40 years ago. Their tactics are the same. Their justifications are the same. Their ideologies are much the same. Back then, Americans responded first with a wait-and-see approach and then with resounding rejection. And they weren't wrong to reject the Rajneesh, not at all. Gatekeeping in this case was a good thing because if they allowed the cult to continue, there could have been irreversible damage. And the point that Brandon Smith is making here is that we must treat social justice leftists with the same uncompromising attitude. Because if we don't, our culture will die from lack of reason and the spiraling collapse into hell will be complete. Now, the leftists know that uh, shame is one of their greatest weapons to use against you. How dare you prevent us from speaking about this in the classroom or teaching your kids about this or that? You know, they're, they're trying to play on their sympathy as a victim, your sympathy, rather, for their victimhood, and also on your unreasonableness for, for daring to enact or to establish boundaries around your child. I would encourage you, click on the link that I provide in the show notes for Brandon Smith's article. Definitely some great food for thought. And again, I think he makes a strong case for why we must be gatekeepers, even if we don't want to. This is The Brian Hyde Show.